you have your Bibles with you, open them up to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 6. Two months ago, we started a sermon series on prayer, and we are culminating that today, uh, going back to where we started. So about two months ago, we started in Matthew chapter 6, and we sort of tried to ground the reason for prayer. And the reason why we were focusing on prayer was because we were moving our prayer meeting from Saturdays to Wednesdays and, and having them occur more often. And we wanted to focus on prayer and the importance of prayer and the necessity of prayer and the things that we need to do to pray better. And so we started in Matthew 6 because it grounded why we pray. But then since then, we've talked about the different types of prayer that we find in Scripture. We have intercession and repentance. We talked about even things like imprecation and thanksgiving and lamentation. We talked about these things because these are the prayers of the people of God that are found in Scripture. And we found of all of these things, one major theme that permeated all of the prayers that honestly shouldn't have surprised us, although I think I was surprised by it. It shouldn't have been a surprise. And that is to have a good, robust prayer life. You must know God. You must not just know him experientially, but you must know him in knowledge and in truth. That all of the prayers that we talked about were, were chocked full of a knowledge and an understanding of not, not only who God is, but how God acts in the world. As we thought through intercession, Moses is praying for the people of Israel who have just sinned grievously against him in making that golden calf. We find that Moses does not go before God pleading for the goodness of the Israelites or pleading for any, anything in them inherent that God should have mercy upon them, but pleading on God's faithfulness to his own word. That is, Moses knew who God was. He knew what God had said and what God had done and therefore pled with God on their behalf on the basis of who God was. When we looked at David's prayer of repentance in Psalm 51, we find that David is repentant and expects God to forgive him because he knows that God is a forgiving God. Jeremiah's lamentations was made to a God of wrath who nevertheless, even in that wrath, is worthy of our hope and trust. Even the prayers of imprecation make sense only in light of God's justice and his love for the people. In other words, to make sense of the prayers we have read require a deep knowledge of who God is and what he has done. This is no less true for the prayers of thanksgiving that we covered. God's knowledge of God is important to our prayers because it actually changes how we pray. Verses 7 and 8 of chapter 6 lay this out for us. We've already preached on these things, but let us just read them again and be reminded. Jesus says to his disciples, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So clearly, knowing who God is, changes the way you pray. If you were a Gentile and you don't know your father, you don't know God as father, and you do not know that he can hear you and that he wants to hear you and even knows what you would pray before you pray, you are prone to babbling. He says, you don't need to do that because you know who God is. The knowledge of God changes how we pray. God is our father, he says here in verse 8. And so we pray in a way that expects that God our father longs to hear from us. We know that God is omniscient, so he knows all things. He knows everything that we would pray before we would pray it. God is omnipotent. He can do whatever it is in his will that he wants to do, and he is sovereign, which means everything in creation works out according to his preordained plan. The wind blows, leaves fall. 
grass grows only by the will of God. God is also immutable. This means that he is unchangeable. God has set the course of the world and he knows his plans for the world from the beginning to the last. So let it be known, friends, we do not pray to change God. God is unchangeable. We do not pray to reset the course of events that he had planned. That course is unchangeable. We pray not to change God, but we pray to change us. We don't pray for God's sake, we pray for our sake. And so now, as we've already read through that, we've already talked through that, we come to the model prayer. Jesus wants to give us a prayer that we can have as a model for how we ought to pray. It's perfectly fine to read these words, as many people do, and to actually utter them as though they were a prayer in and of themselves. That's fine. But you will see that many of the things that we've talked about and all of the other prayers are found fixated in this prayer. Very short, very memorable prayer. There's two ways to break this down. There's actually many, many ways to break this down, but we're going to break it down into two different parts. It is quite clearly broken up into two different sections of three. Matthew loves threes. If you read through the Gospel of Matthew, you're going to find threes everywhere, and he loves breaking things down into three. You'll notice we pray about God for three things. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And then we pray for ourselves for three things. Daily bread, forgive us our debts, and lead us not into temptation. We're going to talk about those in two different ways. Okay? First, we're going to talk about our objectives in praying. What do we actually want out of our prayers? What are we asking God for when we pray? Jesus is telling us, if you have objectives when you come here to pray, these are the things that you ought to be praying for. And the second bit of that, the prayer for us, is about the obstacles that we have in life. Because we are sinful, because we are fallen, because we are weak and we are creaturely. We need help from God so that we do not stumble in a way to keep us from gaining our objective. So we pray first for our objectives and secondly for our obstacles. So let's dive in. Let's read Matthew 6. We're going to go back all the way to chapter 5 just to set a little bit of context and read up through verse 14. Matthew chapter 6 verse 5. And when you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. And truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, Neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of our God. So, what are we to do in praying for our objectives? First, let's talk through the persons that are mentioned here. You'll notice the very first word of this model prayer is our. Now, we are praying our Father, not my Father. 
Jesus could very well, given what he has already said, make this an incredibly personal prayer. After all, while he doesn't exclude public prayer, he does tell you to go into secret and to pray to your father in secret. So it would be natural for him to say, when you're in secret, you are to pray, my father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. But he doesn't do that. Our prayers are to be marked by the fact that we are praying as a group of people who have been purchased and known to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. We pray our Father. We are praying for others. We are not primarily praying for ourselves. We should love to pray for others and to pray with others. As as we get into the objectives, you are going to see that the objectives are far wider than how you live your life. Our objectives are much grander and broader and greater than simply the things that you can get or will get in this life. And your trials and your temptations fall far short of all of the objectives that we are trying to accomplish. And so it's important that we pray our. We pray for Crossway. We pray for the church in general. We pray for one another. We pray for all of these things because the objectives that we mean to reach are not limited to individuals. So we pray our. We pray our Father. We don't pray to a God who sits on top of Mount Olympus and may or may not hear us. We don't pray to a God who is so distant from us and so greater than us, although God is infinitely greater than us, that he does not care to hear what you say. If you know him as Father, then you have to know that the Father is not impassionate with respect to you. He cares what you say. He cares what you think. He cares what troubles you. He cares about the little things in your life, and he cares about the great things in your life. He is your Father. Because he loves you and longs for your well-being in the world, he wants to hear from you and will indeed listen when you pray. He is your Father. But you'll notice how quickly Jesus attaches something onto that. He is not just your Father, but he is your Father in heaven. So many people hear that he is our Father and they take to talking about prayer to God intimately, with passion and with zeal, but with absolutely no reverence for God. Jesus will have none of that. He is your Father in heaven. He is infinitely greater and above you in all ways. The women who are gathered together to do the book discussion on Wednesday read from Jen Wilkin this week. Jen was talking about the immeasurableness of God and how he is greater than us and he is immeasurably greater than us. He's not just greater to the nth degree. There is no degree to which God is greater than us. You cannot measure him. Jen says this, Any discussion of how God is not like us must begin with an acknowledgement that we are measurable and he is not. God is infinite, unbound by limits. He defies measurement of any kind. His limitlessness underlies all of his attributes. His power, knowledge, love, and mercy are not merely great, but they are infinitely so, measurelessly so. No one can place any aspect of who God is on a scale or weigh it against a yardstick. You are earthly creatures. He is a heavenly God. He is far above anything in this universe. You cannot think You cannot think of him just as your father, but your father who is in heaven. And I will get old, and there will be a day when my son will grow up to be an adult. If the Lord tarries, and if he gives us life to live that long, there will be a day when I am decrepit, and my mind is disintegrated, and he will have to take care of me, and he will take good care of me. He will take wonderful care of me. 
but he will also be making decisions for me. There comes a time when sons become an authority over their fathers if the Lord allows them that much time. This happens. It's happened to many of you. That will never happen with your father who is in heaven. He will always be infinitely greater than you. God is both our father and he is the God in heaven. Our prayers should never be so intimate that they are flippant and they should never be so formal that they are impassionate. Give both your heart and your respect to God when you pray. Those are the persons of the prayer, but now the points of the prayer. What are the objectives and the points of the objects by which we pray? Jesus starts by saying, hallowed be your name. Well, Jesus didn't actually say that. That is a leftover from the KJV. There's no reason to say the word hallowed. We only say the word hallowed two times. One, when we recite the Lord's Prayer, because every single person in here who has it memorized has it memorized in the KJV, because that's just what happens. And two, when you say the word Halloween. Okay? That's the only other time you say it. And during Halloween, when you hollow out a pumpkin. That's about the only other time you say it. And that's a totally different word. So, hallowed isn't a terribly helpful word here. All that word means is holy. That's it. That's it. Make his name holy. It's the same word, same group of words that we use for things like God is holy, 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 and the Spirit is holy. And people of God are to be holy, so we call them saints. It's the same word, that we are to grow in holiness, so we are to be sanctified, same group of word. It means that we ought to have God's name be thought of as holy, The idea of a name here doesn't just mean that his name implies holiness, but simply the reputation that is attached to that name is thought of as holy, as set aside, as different and distinct, as greater and measurably so. We think often of people who are not known for good reputations. We think of Hitler and Benedict Arnold and Toby Flinderson, but we can also think of people who are good in their reputation, right? There are Abraham Lincoln and Paul the Apostle. There are people of good reputation. God, his reputation that follows him should be known as holy in all ways, shapes, and forms. Holy, the reputation that is attached to him because of his people. This is part of the problem with the exile and why God had to undo the exile. In Ezekiel 36, verses 20 and 21, God talks about his people going into exile and what that said to the nations about who he was. When they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name because it was said about them, these are the people of Yahweh. Yet they had to leave his land in exile. Then I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel profaned among the nations where they went. Verse 36 of the same chapter. The nations that remain around you will know that I, Yahweh, have rebuilt what was demolished and have replanted what was desolate. I, Yahweh, have spoken and I will do it. So the ruined cities will be filled with a flock of people, just as Jerusalem is filled with a flock of sheep for sacrifice during its appointed festivals. Then they will know that I am Yahweh. He has concern for his name. When the peoples were pushed out into exile, people looked at them and they said, well, they're Yahweh's people. Yahweh couldn't protect them. And God says, well, I will bring them back in so that you will know that I am Yahweh. I will protect my name. It means that we must correctly represent the character of God, especially because we are named after him. Christian, you carry around the name Christ with you. 
correctly rep that name, correctly model what that means in your priorities, in your value, in the nature of who you are. You must represent the same in God. Secondly, Jesus says that we are to pray for the kingdom. He says, let your kingdom come. Now, there are some who think that this is ultimately pointed at the future time when Jesus' kingdom will come in full, but I tell you that it's not just then. It's not just eschatologically out there for the kingdom to come in fullness. It is also for the kingdom to come here and now. Let's talk for a second about the cosmology, the way that the universe is ordered in the book of Matthew. So if you were to look at a map of the world, if you just looked at a satellite, it would just be blobs of blue and blobs of green, and over my house, a blob of brown where nothing grows. But otherwise, it would just be blue and green, okay? But when we start to actually use maps, we have little lines that go around countries, and they trace the borders. And these are especially helpful in things like war. So if you go and you find where certain countries are fighting against other countries, you can see that those lines move. And we have battle maps of like the Battle of the Bulge in World War II, where you can see Hitler's tanks having made a, a bulge in the line of the Allies. Well, these things are very helpful for us, but what would it look like in Matthew if you drew a line between where the kingdom of God was and where the kingdom of Satan was? Well, we couldn't use a globe because the earth is seen as fully the kingdom of Satan and heaven is seen as the kingdom of God. And so the way you think about what is happening in the book of Matthew is the kingdom of God is infiltrating the kingdom of Satan. And so just as, speaking of World War II, we landed 24,000 troops on Normandy during D-Day, so God has sent a landing party for humanity to fight his battle for him. Instead of sending 24,000, Jesus just kind of said, I got this, and he did it himself. But that's the picture of the battle that's going on. Heaven is a kingdom up here. Earth is a kingdom down here. The kingdom of earth is ruled by Satan. The kingdom of heaven is ruled by God. We see this, and we have seen this already in the book of Matthew. In Jesus' temptation, which we will come back to again and again in this sermon, chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to them, I will give you all these things if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus didn't look at him and say, they're not yours. Jesus took that as a legitimate offer that he had to battle with the word of God because it is a legitimate offer. The kingdom is Satan's. Adam, in his fall, has offered the world as he ruled over it to Satan instead of to God because he listened to the voice of the snake instead of the voice of God. Even later in verse 23, when Jesus begins to talk about the good news, the good news the gospel that we think of in the book of Matthew is almost always connected, with the exception of one time, the word good news is connected directly to the kingdom. Chapter 4, verse 23. Now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Heaven has come down. God has not left you alone in your sin and he has not left you alone in the rule of Satan, but Jesus has come and the kingdom of God has come with him. So, we pray for his kingdom to come. We pray that the gospel of the kingdom, the good news that Jesus is king and not the things of the world, 
whether the rulers of the world, the principalities of the world, Satan and the devil, regardless of what you might consider ruling the world, Jesus has actually come and he has won victory over the world, so the world is his. That is the good news of the kingdom. And that those who trust in him can be found in that kingdom. And so we proclaim and we herald the coming kingdom by preaching, by teaching, by evangelizing, by missions. Thirdly, we ask that his will be done After all, it makes perfectly good sense. We should do what God asks for us to do. If he is our Lord and our King and our Master, we ought to do the very things that he calls upon us to do. Now, I would take time to elaborate on that. I don't think it needs too terribly much elaboration. But the point of the matter is all three of these things are really closely related. It's almost impossible to pull one out and to talk about it independent of the other two. How can we talk about God's kingdom coming unless he is making sinners into saints? unless he is having people actually do his will. So to see God's name as holy is to understand the coming of his kingdom and to see the accomplishment of his will among his people. To see God's kingdom come is to see God's will be done and his name upheld as holy because of that. To do God's will is to spread the kingdom of the God, to spread the gospel of the kingdom of Christ and to teach people to live their lives in accordance with it. That's, by the way, how the whole book ends, right? Go, baptize, right? making disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. All three of these things are sort of blobbed in together. We are to go proclaiming the kingdom, and looking like the king. That's it. We are meant as an objective goal in our lives, nothing more than this, that who God truly is might be known and shown throughout the world. That is what Jesus is saying your objective is. You are to make God known to the world and show him in your lives what he is and who he is. That is our goal. Everything comes down to that. But it is not that simple. It is not that simple. There are obstacles in our lives. When we pray for these things, there are three things that Jesus outlines for us. First, that we need provision. He says, give us this day our daily bread. We are weak. We are creaturely creatures. And so, unlike God who has life flowing through him at all times, we need sustenance. We need physical support. Now, bread in the first century, especially amongst Jews, became what Coke is to the people in the South. So, if you want to ask them if they want a pop, they'll say, oh, I'll have a Coke. But they don't really mean Coca-Cola. They just mean any sort of pop will do, right? It's just, it's that is the image of all pop everywhere for many people in the South. Bread is the image of all food everywhere for the Jews of this time. And so when it says, give us this day our daily bread, it just means give us our daily nourishment. Provide for us what we need here and now because we are not self-sustaining. The, the goals that we are trying to accomplish, the coming of the kingdom are so massive and so large that we cannot accomplish them in a day. We cannot accomplish them in a lifetime. We can't accomplish them in 2,000 years. So what we need is we need God to continually refresh us and to give us nourishment daily. And there's no way you can hear, give us this day our daily bread and not think of Exodus 16 and the provision of manna in the wilderness. 
The people went out in a place where they could not live without sustenance from God. And what did God do? Daily brought them as dew on the ground, manna and bread from heaven. We're saying do that for us. We are not yet in the promised land. We are in the wilderness. And while we are in the wilderness without your resources, without the help of God, we will never be able to live. But the provision that we need is not just physical, it's spiritual. And the work of bread is important here. After all, if you go back again to the temptation of Jesus in Matthew 5 through 7, 4, sorry, chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. The devil took him to the holy city and set him up on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against stone. I'm sorry, I read the last part. Wrong part. Scratch that. Sorry, verse 3. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We'll come back to those other verses. Keep them in mind. We'll come back to them. But Satan came to him while he was being tempted in the desert, while he was hungry, and said, Listen, if you're the Son of God, this really isn't a big deal for you. Why don't you just change the stones into bread, fill your stomach? And Jesus said, No, because it's said in the book of the law in Deuteronomy, man cannot live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Our lives are not just physical lives, they are spiritual lives. And God feeds us with his word. He feeds us not only physically, but spiritually to keep us alive. These things have met, by the way, beautifully in a passage that we don't have time for in John 6, 28 through 35, where Jesus passes from manna to the word and belief to his own body in the cross and the crucifixion and ultimately in the Lord's Supper in that beautiful passage in John 6. Jesus is everything that we need. He is the resurrection and the life. He will one day be all of the food that we need. He will one day be all of the spiritual life that we need. But in the meantime, we have to plead with God, give us more, give us more, and give it daily. We need it daily. It's not just that we have provision needs. We also have problems, and those problems are our sins. In verse 12, we read that we, are to for, we ask God to forgive our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. It doesn't just talk about economics. What it means is, in a shame an honor culture, the idea of taking debts on is that you've done something wrong to somebody and then they consider that as a debt. It's another word for sin. So all this means is sin. We have sinned against God. And so we plead that he will forgive us. But notice it says, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Verses 14 and 15 seem incredibly strong. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you also. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. You need forgiveness for your trespasses. What Jesus isn't saying is the way to do that is just be a really forgiving person. If you can be a cakewalk in this life and let people trounce on you, then what God will do is he will allow his judgment to move over you. That's not what he means. What he means is people who know the grandness of what God has forgiven in them are very quick to be the same kind of people who forgive minor offenses in this life. If you are unwilling to forgive minor offenses in this life, it means you have no idea the kind of thing that God has forgiven of you. Matthew 18 makes this abundantly clear. Jesus talks about a man who is going to settle his debts, and he comes across a man who owes him 10,000 talents. 
10,000 talents is a really, really bad, again, it's just like hallowed. We have no idea how much a talent is. A talent is about one year's salary for the average working bloke. That's 10,000 years of salary. So let's say you make $35,000 a year, which is low, maybe on average for this area, give or take. So you make $35,000 a year over 10,000 years, that's $350 million. You owe it to somebody because you planned poorly. I don't know how you owe that much money to somebody, but you, you did something wrong and you owe that to somebody and he just totally forgives it. He says, don't worry about it. I'm in a good mood today. And then you go out and you find the guy who owed you a Big Mac and you throw him in prison because you just can't let that go. Jesus says, what's going to happen to you? The man who just gave you $350 million is going to come to you and say, you are worthless and you deserve to be put in prison. People who have been forgiven much know how to forgive. That's the point that Jesus is making here. God will forgive as we have forgiven. People who know how much God has forgiven are quick to forgive. But we have that problem. We, we twofold things here. We both need to know that Christ is able to forgive us and that we are to be forgiven for our debts. And then we are to be the kind of people who are willing to forgive the minor offenses that people have against us. And we don't have a list of people who have done us wrong that we might be able to vengefully get back at them. That we are quick to forgive. Jesus Christ has purchased forgiveness for us. On his cross, not only has he won victory over the world, but he has won our freedom from the sins that enslaved us. And so because of that, you are freed and forgiven when you trust in Christ. Jesus has overcome our problems, so we are free to forgive others. Thirdly, there is to be protection for us. Verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's a very odd statement. We know that from the book of James, God does not tempt anyone. James 1, 13 through 15, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So God doesn't tempt you. So what does this actually say? God, we know you can't tempt us, and you won't tempt us, so please don't tempt us. That doesn't mean quite that. It means something along the lines of when God tests you, which is different than tempting, when God tests you, we're asking that God not test us so much that we are led into testing God. Don't lead us into that temptation. Look again at the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, the passage that I had read to you before. The devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. He said, listen, if you're the son of God, this is written about you. Clearly this applies to you. So let's see if it works. let's, Let's see if God is true to his word. So I've brought you up here to the top of the pinnacle. Jump. And if the word of God is true, then you will be fine. But if you're too weak, what does Jesus say? Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. 
You see, the promises are not there to claim. Claiming a promise is jumping off the temple. Trusting the promise is saying, I'm good, but I still believe it. There's a huge difference between the two. Jesus says, I'm not going to put God to the test. I'm not going to see if God is true to his word. Rather, I'm going to believe that he is true to his word. This is not like a company who's trying to test the limits of their phone or their new car. So they put it under extreme heat. They put it under extreme cold. They hit it with a hammer. They run over it with a semi and they let a dog chew on it for a while to see if it's going to work. That's not what we are to do with God. We are to trust God. We're not to put him to the test. Remember, we're in the wilderness. And just as we talked about Exodus 16 with the provision of manna, immediately after God has given the manna, after God has moved them through the Red Sea, after God has delivered them with 10 plagues over the Egyptians, after all of that, the people are landing in the wilderness and they say, we're really thirsty. We have this recorded for us in Exodus 17. The congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water there for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Is he really God? What we're asking in the Lord's Prayer is don't push us so far that we are led to turn around and say things like, is God really with me or not? Is, is God really there? Let's start doing some tests. Let's start looking for some proof texts. We don't want to put God to the test. And so we're asking that in the testing that we have, that we not turn that back on God. Paul writes of this incident in 1 Corinthians 10. And he says this, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the fact that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. So Jesus here prays not that we should be let out of all temptation, but that we are not tested so far as to worry that God is not with us and among us. And what's more, he says that that looks like being delivered from, the ESV says evil, there's a footnote there, it should probably be the evil one. That we are delivered from the serpent, that we are delivered from the destroyer, as Paul said. That we don't fall into his trap. We don't fall into the trap that he placed for Jesus. When he said, is God really on your side? Jump and prove it. We are praying that we are never led into a position where we do that kind of thing. 
These are the obstacles that will keep our objectives from coming true. We are weak. We need provision. We are sinful. And we need forgiveness. We are easily led astray. And we need a rod and a staff to keep us in line. So God, do these things for us. So if we have looked through the scripture and listened closely to Jesus' teaching, we should have impressed upon us two very important things, both from this passage and the other ones that we've looked at. First, prayer is centered around knowing God, who he is, and what he wants. That is how we pray. That is what we pray for. Listen, this is revolutionary for many of us in our lives. We spend so much of our time praying for insignificant things, not great things. We pray for minor things, not these sort of objectives, not objectives that have to deal with the history of the world and the path that millions of people will take and not the proclamation of the gospel, but with everyday aches and pains. And it's not that those things are wrong, but God already knows them. Listen to how Jesus goes on to talk about our prayer lives and our anxieties in chapter 6. Verse 25, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body and what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? He goes on to say the same thing about being anxious about your life. He said you can't add anything to life or about clothing. Because God knows that, but what you are supposed to, what you are supposed to seek out first is the kingdom of God. That is exactly what that Lord's Prayer does. We seek the kingdom of God first. We seek his will to be done first. We seek his name to be made holy. And all these other things will be added on to us. We seek these things because we know who God is, and we know that he is great, and we know that his glory is the best thing for us. The best prayers of the saints are always steeped with the aroma of good theology. Always steeped with it. It is found in every single worthwhile prayer in Scripture. So we give thanks to God because he is good and he does good. We pray for his salvation to go to all ends of the world so that his glory might be known for the good of the people of the church. We pray for others based on God's own promises and sealed by his own work and we confess our sins and lament and repent. Repentance, knowing that God is faithful to forgive us. Friends, if you want a better prayer life, get better theology and then put it into work, which is, by the way, one of the very things that we're doing on Wednesday nights. This is why we read the Word of God and then pray the Word of God, because those ought to be the grand things that we are praying about. Those ought to be the grand things that take over the majority of our prayers. And it's not that praying for needs are not important but they are secondarily and tertiarily so. Second, you need to understand that you are rewarded for your prayers. Even as we began our sermon series, the first sermon, you probably don't remember it, it wasn't terribly memorable, but if you go back, you can listen to it, and it says, the main idea behind this is God rewards the prayers of the humble in faith. The two most important parts of that is God and knowing who God is, and knowing who he is, how he works and what he is, and secondly, knowing that he rewards his saints. Prayer is not for him, but it is for us. In the end, we pray for God's kingdom to come and to be seen among his people because it helps to mold us into who we are meant to be. 
Praying specifically for the kingdom will give you a better heart for the kingdom. It will make you see how small and insignificant many of your worries are. It will make you trust more in the Lord. It doesn't mean that we're always going to get the things that we ask for. We won't get immediate justice. And very often, as Paul learned, God will ask for us to understand that the thorn's going to be left in our flesh and there will be more suffering for you. It might mean that mercy falls upon us as it fell upon the Israelites who made the calf, but it will always mean good for those who love God. That is the reward of our prayers. Our prayers mold us. Our prayers demonstrate to us what is important to us. Our prayers demonstrate to us our knowledge of God, and they help mold us to be better practicers and images of the very thing that God is to be so that he can be called holy because we are holy. And it's here that we should probably turn to the idea of fatherhood again. What we have said is true, but it is only for those who know God as Father. Jesus isn't talking to everyone here. The Sermon on the Mount is primarily for his disciples, the people that would follow him. You only know who the Father is through Jesus Christ. Next week, we're going to turn to the Gospel of John. We're going to begin working through that Gospel. And while we won't be preaching on this text, next week it's very close at hand. John 1, 10 through 13. Jesus came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet who all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor of a husband's will, but born of God. Jesus gives you the right to call God your father. It is only for those who know Christ. Maybe, maybe, friend, your prayers are hindered because you don't know God as Father. Maybe you've tried to call him Father before, but he's just not that because you don't come to him through Christ. Receive the Lord Jesus Christ and know him as your Father. For many who already are God's children, may your prayers be filled with hope and knowledge of God. May God grant to you what is best in all situations. Pray for these things. Pray for the great things. God will take care of everything else, but seek first the kingdom of God. My lasting and firm prayer for you is the same as Paul's. See how these two things, I'm not going to explain what Paul is going to pray here in Ephesians, but think through the things that we've prayed, the, the objects of our prayer, what we want to see happen in our prayers and the obstacles to them as well, and see how Paul prays for them both in this prayer in the book of Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through the Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That is no minor prayer. That is majoring on the majors. That is not Paul 
consumed with the little itty-bitty details of life. That is to have the power of God be known by every single person that Paul works with. That the power of God might fill them. That surpasses all understanding. You might be filled with the fullness of God. That is a mighty prayer. May those be our types of prayers. May we pray that people know God, that they are filled with his fullness and keep us from anything that would hinder that from happening. Let us pray. Father, I am thankful for your good news. I am thankful that Jesus Christ has forgiven me for my sin and that we can know you as Father. I'm grateful that as Father, you are able to hear us and you kindly listen to us. Whether we pray for major things or whether we pray for minor things, Father, you are kind and compassionate to hear us. But Father, we pray for great things. We pray for the very things that Christ has come to enact. We pray for his kingdom. We pray for his glory. We pray for the name of Jesus Christ and God our Father through the work of the Holy Spirit. We pray that everyone might come to know them and that any of the weaknesses that we have, any of our proclivities to sin, any of our fallen natures and and the ability for us to be sidetracked by so many things in this world, Father, that you might have us avoid those things, that we can be solely determined and focused on one thing, proclaiming the kingdom of God and knowing the power of it. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.